hello. I'm Savannah. And I'm Alicia. And this is Burden of Proof. So quick before we actually get into all the, you know, warnings and stuff. This episode, you're probably like, this isn't the right person. This is an Alicia episode. (laughs) Yeah. And it's because this is the life of a paralegal. We're going to get a little bit into that this morning. I'm having a little bit of a career switch, not like a major career switch. I'm just, I'm switching from non-litigation law to litigated law. And so my work schedule has been... So you have to study I up. I to study and I'm super excited. It's the switch that I wanted to make. Um, but yeah. it just, unfortunately, it took precedent this week and I wasn't able to get a case out. But Alicia is amazing and she was able to and here we are. Yeah. So that's that explanation. I'll be back next week for you. Whoop. You better be. I will be. <laughs> because I can't I, do this every week. I hated not getting a case done this week. First of all, it felt weird. And second of all, I was like, I feel like a disappointment. Oh, gosh. No. Because we've almost been doing the podcast a year, like eight yes. months. No, like 10 months now. Yeah. So this is the first time that I've not come, like, that I've had to say. I won't have it done. I won't yeah. have it done in time. And it was like last minute. But it's okay. We figured it worked it out. out. It was fine. All, All right. All is well. All is well. Except that she does not want to hear this case. I really don't. Like, this but, is so out of my comfort zone. But this was requested by one of our OG listeners. Yes. And I just, we couldn't, we couldn't put it off anymore. And this takes place locally to us. Mm-hmm. So it's a tough one. So fair warning. It is a child victim. I don't go into a lot of graphic detail. We try to be very careful of that because we just don't think it's entirely necessary. You get the gist of it. Yeah. But nevertheless, it's an 11-year-old girl, and so it's tough. It's a tough case. Um, And I wish that there had been a happier outcome of everything. Unfortunately, not. So, fair warning. I mean, that's basically the only warning. And addiction issues. And sexual crimes. Yes. I mean, yeah. Child victim of sexual assault and murder. So, okay, deep breaths, Savannah. I know. Deep breaths are being taken. We're good. Okay. I'll lead us in meditation if I need to. (laughs) Yeah. we We can break for a moment if you need to. So, in 2004, 11-year-old Carly Brucia was living in Sarasota, Florida with her mom, Susan, and stepdad, Steve. Home videos show her as a bright and happy girl that loved her family and especially loved getting to visit her dad and his family in New York. Little did the Brucia family know that Christmas of 2003 was the last time that they would see Carly alive. Carly returned from her visit with her father to Sarasota and her routine life after the new year. She left the Big Apple. Yes. And then on February 1st, 2004, she was at her friend Danielle's house, and the plan was to watch the Super Bowl and sleep over. She had slept over the night before, but I think she was also supposed to sleep over there the night of the Super Bowl. Okay. Possibly not, because I think it was a school day the next day, so not really sure. I mean, I did that, though. Like, if you're going to the same school, like, sometimes you would do that. Yeah. Ultimately, it it only matters because that's not what ends up happening. Mm-hmm. 
According to the 911 call her mother would eventually have to make, Carly had a fight with her friends. Danielle's mom had called Susan to let her know that Carly left, stating that she didn't want to wait for a ride and she was going to walk home. Susan immediately sent Steve to look for her as she was not okay with Carly making the walk alone. Yeah, I mean, she's an 11-year-old girl and it's not, that's fair. Yes. And especially being that it's a local case, when you hear about where it was, we'll get into okay. that. Um, you'd be like, yeah, I don't want my 11-year-old kid walking yeah. in that area on that street. Yeah. After driving the path that she should have taken and not finding her, Steve circled around the area for at least an hour or so, and then he went back home. He went back home and told Susan, like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know where see she went. Her. Like, I can't find her. Would she have gone somewhere else? Susan immediately knew something was wrong. Yeah, I mean, she's 11. She's not um, little enough to, like, know. Get lost. To, she like, knew her way. Yeah, yeah, that's my point. Like, yeah. she, you know, I mean, yes, she could have gotten lost, but he immediately went to where she was, and it's a small town. Yes. So, you know. Well, I mean, I wouldn't call Sarasota a small town, but it's the area is familiar enough. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's and, a it's a grid system. Like, yes, I mean, I know we said local, like we live here. It's, yeah. it's very local. <laughs> it's it's you know, it's she wouldn't have gotten lost. Yeah, I mean, depending on where you're going to say where it is, but yeah, she would not have gotten lost. She knew her way. Yeah, she did. So it was about within a couple hours after. Her getting the phone call from the friend's mom saying that she's coming home and they can't find her. She knows, Susan knows that something is wrong. So she calls 911. She doesn't wait. She doesn't hesitate. She calls 911. And here is a portion of that call. 911, what's the location of the emergency? My, my daughter is missing. What's your address, ma'am? And your phone number? Okay. Has she been missing before? No. She had a fight with her girlfriend. She decided to walk home. And we've been driving around for about an hour and a half. Uh-huh. And now um, it's not an hour and a half walk. She's gone. We can't find her anywhere. I've called all her friends. How old is she? Eleven. And when was the last time that she was she was seen? Was it six o'clock, Around six o'clock. And she was at a friend's house? Yeah. Okay, what's her name, ma'am? Carly, C-A-R-L-I-E. And last name? Brucia, B-R-U-C-I-A. She's just shy of five feet. Okay. Do you know how much she weighs? She's around 120 pounds. Okay, what color hair does she have? Dirty blonde. And what color eyes? Blue. <laughs> Sorry, it's so sad. I know. As a mom, I can't. I have I have my wall up now yeah. so that I don't completely fall apart. Um. So fortunately, the Sarasota County Sheriff's Department has a policy to investigate all missing children's cases. So yeah, they don't mess around. They don't say, "Oh, well, she's eleven. She might have just taken off. She might be they with didn't somebody." Come here to fuck around. Yeah, they're gonna find her. Yeah. So they immediately start 
looking, officers arrive to Susan and Steve's house to conduct interviews, and then they head over to the friend, Danielle's house. Contrary to what Susan told 911 dispatcher, Danielle and her family stated that Carly had spent the night on January 31st, the Mm -hmm. night before, and was going to stay that night as well, but had been upset because Susan and Steve had been fighting a lot. So they claimed that Carly left saying she wanted to go home and be with her mom. Okay. Either way, police put out a be on the lookout order, and those investigating pay visits to some of Carly's other friends' homes to confirm that she wasn't with them. Okay, that's, yep. Investigators had hoped that Carly was just with somebody else that Susan maybe didn't know, and that she would just show up the next day, either show up at home in the morning or show up at school, even. Mm Mm-hmm. But when that didn't happen, they implemented a search with the canine unit. Using a pillowcase from Carly's home, the dogs were able to pick up her scent and begin following the correct path, Mm -hmm. the expected path, down Bee Ridge Road towards her home. They then cut through the parking lot of a restaurant. So those of us local... Uh, know that restaurant as Evie's Tavern and Grill. On Bee Ridge? On Bee Ridge. Yeah, why is this child walking down Bee Ridge Road? Yeah. Near Evie's. Yes, exactly. It's not that it's a bad area. It's just a very high-trafficked area. It It is. But even today, I wouldn't... I don't even like driving. And not like... It's just a really high-trafficked area. I think about all the cars on Bee Ridge Road. Yeah. I, it's like a small highway in our area. Yeah, it's, it's a six-lane so road. Now, I don't think, based on where they lived, and I don't think that I specify this, but they lived on or, or just off of McIntosh Road, and she cut through the parking lot because she was going to take basically cut through Instead of walking all the way down Bee Ridge mm-hmm. to Macintosh and go, she was cutting through. What does that connect to? Evie's is between. She's just cutting the corner. Yeah, right? she's, that's what I well, thought. Yeah, I mean, she's cutting a really big corner. Let me if look you at the will. map. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, she's cutting a really big corner, but she's cutting behind all those plazas and stuff that are on Bee Ridge until you reach Macintosh. Yeah. Um. So. Technically, it would have been safer for her to stay on the main road. So let me and just say, she's as of right now, today, twenty twenty three, she's cutting behind a gun shop, a car wash, a car wash, a laser hair removal place, a small family run barber shop, yes, a bar, yes, and a USPS, a Pet Boys, and then a Batteries Plus to meet at right. Macintosh. Yes. Yeah. Not really. And there's a liquor store across the street. There's a Dollar General across the street. Yes. I mean, it's fine. It's just. And in 2004, like you said, it could have been entirely different. It probably was. There probably was more mainstream businesses in that area. But nevertheless. It was too busy of a road regardless of the area. And like, I don't know why we're sugarcoating it. I wouldn't want to walk down this road. I, I, as a grown woman, wouldn't. My want parents to. live over yeah. near the Bee Ridge area, and like, not my fave. Yeah, and they don't live near Macintosh. Like, 
I used to not live far from there when we first moved here. Yeah. In any case. Nobody who doesn't live here cares. <laughs> yeah. They're like, what are you talking about? So sorry. So the dogs continue to pick up Carly's scent, but as they reach the rear of that parking lot. Mm-hmm. It's a big parking lot. Between the restaurant and the car wash, the dogs split in separate directions. So investigators realized that's where the trail ends. Yeah. It was entirely possible that Carly had cut through the parking lot. Like I said, it is a shortcut to her house. So the detective's next step was to talk to the owners of Evie's and the car wash to see if they have security cameras. The motion detection camera at the back of the car wash was the only one that picked up footage of Carly. Now, I don't know if I should say fortunately or unfortunately here. I guess fortunately, because this has this helps them significantly, mm-hmm. but unfortunately, it also showed a man approaching her. Oh, no. The video shows Carly walking toward the camera, looking down at what they believed was like a Walkman or an iPod, and she had headphones or earbuds in. She didn't even seem to notice him walking directly toward her until he's right in front of her. He immediately grabbed her arm and was clearly saying something to her as he took his his free hand out of his pocket and then he put it right back in his pocket. The detectives believed that he likely threatened her with a weapon of some kind, but the video was not clear enough to see Mm -hmm. exactly what it was. Yeah, that makes sense. The man turns around, still holding Carly's arm, and walks her out of the frame, but they get a better look at what he was wearing and sort of a profile view of his face. They don't get a fully clear shot. They begin to work with the description of a white male, average height, kind of a stocky build with a full head of dark hair. The detectives said that standard procedure for investigating a missing child is to start with the parents and family, then work their way outward, so to speak. So they asked Carly's stepdad, Steve Kensler, to come in to the station for an interview first. The detective asked Steve for his alibi during the time frame that Carly went missing, and Steve explained that he was home with Susan when she got the call that Carly had left Daniel's Danielle's house. Not Daniel. Danielle. Yeah. (laughs) He said that Susan then told him that Carly began walking home and asked him to go pick her up, that she shouldn't be walking down Bee Ridge alone. He said he left right away, and when he didn't see Carly, he repeatedly called Susan to check in and make sure she hadn't somehow made it home, made it past him and made it home. Yeah. Steve told them that after a while of driving around, he went back home and told Susan he couldn't find her. Where else could she be? You know, maybe she went to another friend's house. The detective then asked him what was going through his mind at that point, and Steve responded that something is wrong. Carly isn't that kind of person. She always called to tell us where she was and what was going on. He also gave them a tip of something unusual he noticed when he was driving around looking. 
He gave them the description of a red tow truck that he saw also driving up and down Bee Ridge and pulled through the car wash parking lot a couple of times. After going home and picking up Susan to look more, they noticed the red truck again, and the driver even slowed down and looked right at them, but then took off in the other direction. Well, that's suspicious. Mm Mm-hmm. Then when they swing past Danielle's house again to see if Carly may have gone back there, they realize, oh, we know whose tow truck it is, and it's in Danielle's driveway. Steve told the detectives that the truck belonged to a guy named Ron Choquette, a friend of Danielle's mom, who was living with them at the time. Okay, that's a little weird. Yep. So the detectives ruled out Steve as a suspect and begin to weigh what they know about Ron Choquette. Yeah, that's, I feel like, the next choice. Ron was there the night that they had questioned Danielle and her mother. At the time, they didn't notice anything unusual about Ron, but between what Steve told them and the fact that the man who grabbed Carly was wearing the kind of work coveralls, Um, a, like a mechanic or possibly a tow truck driver would wear, it wasn't looking great. So detectives brought Ron in for a formal interview, and they ask about the time Carly had spent at, at that house and if anything had happened out of the ordinary. Ron said Carly and the other girls spending the night on Saturday had pretty much done the usual, stayed up late, giggled a lot, but that he was sleeping in another room. He said he woke up Sunday morning, as usual, and went to work. The detective asked what he was wearing to work on Sunday. Ron said he was wearing a Super Bowl t-shirt. I mean, Super Bowl weekend? Yeah. Okay. When the detective asked Ron, well, how did you drive home from work? And did you drive down Bee Ridge? Ron admitted that he was on that road, but he told them he, too, was looking for Carly. He had gotten word that she was yeah. missing. Well, um, and if he's driving down the road, he may as well, like, slow down and look for her. Right. So the detectives then showed him a still frame of the security footage and asked him who is in the picture. He looked at it and said, yeah, that looks like Carly. The detective agreed and then pointed to the man in the photo. He asked, who's that? To which Ron replied, I haven't the slightest idea, sir. Definitely not me. It does kind of look like me, doesn't it, though? Yeah, he's like, oh, shit. Yeah. The detective agreed that it kind of looked like him and explained that deputies who initially spoke with him at the house that night thought it was him, which is why they had asked him to come in. Ron told them to do whatever they had to do to confirm that it's not him, stating he would be glad to do whatever I have to to work with you. Okay. Yeah. I can't decide how I feel about him, but, like, you know. Yeah. I I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm a little suspicious, but... I watched the footage of his interview and his demeanor was also like yeah whatever like he doesn't seem he seems the appropriate amount of nervous yeah like of course even an innocent person is going to be nervous when they're pulled into the police station and questioned and told 
uh, that kind of looks like you. But it was hard to tell for sure. He repeatedly stated, though, that it wasn't him, that he would never put anyone through that. So he waited at the station while the detectives went to the tow truck company to verify his alibi. Both Ron's boss and co-workers confirmed that he had still been at work when Carly was abducted. Okay. All right. Ron's boss even showed them his time card. Still, the detectives did their due diligence and executed a search warrant on Ron's tow truck, which uncovered no evidence, and Ron was cleared as a suspect. All right, free my man. He ain't do nothing. Yes. <laughs> he was just trying to be a nice guy. Yeah, I, I, which drive, is fair. But like, still, don't maybe don't be creepy. Don't, like, drive past the parents and, like, look at them all creepy-like. <laughs> yeah, I mean... And then, take off he was probably like is that her parents like trying to place them is probably what he was doing if i had to guess but so with nothing else to go on detectives had to bring susan in to look at the video of the man who took carly to see if she recognized him to show danielle i'm sorry susan Susan. mom. sorry i like was listening but it didn't register what you said yeah, they had to bring mom in to see if she Dang it. recognized That him. sucks, man. And Susan, as you heard on the 911 call, was already having a difficult time. Yeah. So the detective, like, was very apologetic, but they had no alternative at this point. They needed I mean, yeah, to try everybody and- needs to look at it to be like, because, you know, the yeah. most common people to abduct children or to kidnap children are people that you know often so she watches it of course she did not know the man and then she proceeded to have like a total meltdown in his office understandably yeah fair enough and the detective is i don't know the detective seems so sweet in his interviews yeah like he i mean even years later when the docuseries that i watched Mm -hmm. Listen, I mean, the crime rate around here is fairly low. Stuff like this just isn't super common. Yeah, And so I'm sure it was very hard for them to get through this emotionally, you know? Yeah. Because when you're not desensitized to it, it's harder. Yep. So this only left one more option. They released the video to the media in hopes that someone would recognize him and come forward. Yeah, I mean, I guess what else do you try i don't know yeah did anybody come forward eventually but not right away okay but as the detectives have multiple eyes repeatedly watching the video footage one of them realized that the coveralls the man was wearing had a name tag sewn on the front okay After hours of using enhancing software to clear up the image, they couldn't make it out, but they believed that the patch had three letters on it. Okay. The FBI then gets involved. They pitch in with resources. And after thousands of phone calls to the tip line that they set up, detectives ended up with over 700 leads. That's a lot to sort through. Yes. And this, mind you, this is all a very short period of time. Yeah, it's like, happening this is really all fast. Very fast. Because then on Tuesday morning, 
They receive a call from a local business owner stating he believed the man in the video was his former business partner. Okay. He said the man's name is Joseph Smith, and he believed it to be him because he not only matched the general description, but the way he walked and the coveralls matched their uniforms that they wear. Okay, at the so shop. he's got a lot. The the somebody's gait says a lot about them, the way that they walk. Like you know that, especially if it's a specific thing, you know? Yes. But they're thinking, well, his name's Joseph. This guy was wearing like, is yeah, it? But and the Joe. guy says Joe. The guy says, but his name tag on his coveralls says, says, Joe. says Joe. A background check showed that Joseph Smith was out of prison on parole. What was he in prison for? Actually, just drug charges. Okay. Well, I mean, you got you got ahead of me. I'm sorry, I <laughs> it's got okay. I got no, angry. Okay. Well, the problem is I don't know much about the case, but I do know like the legalities that come afterwards. Like I know. Mm. So mm-hmm. that's what I was like. Oh, I think I understand. You'll the, you'll understand what I mean when you get to the yeah. end. So you better listen all the way through to the end, or else you won't get what I'm saying. <laughs> So they also found out that he had a car registered in his name that was a brown Lincoln. They began reviewing the security footage again to see if there was a sign of the car. There was no brown Lincoln. However, they did notice a light-colored Buick station wagon that pulls through the parking lot, then kind of turns around, travels down B Ridge in front of the car wash, and then turned on the side street that runs right next to the car wash. Okay. So they're thinking either this car, this person could be involved, it could be the man, or it might be a witness because the timing of yeah. it. They're like, there's no way they didn't see something. Well, I don't know if it's me driving down a side street. It's because... It's because I'm listening to Hamilton and I want to finish the song, but I'm almost at my house, so I got to figure out a way <laughs> to... Well, you better be careful because one day you might witness something. I'm sorry. Satisfied is more important <laughs> than getting home on time. I got to finish my jams. <laughs> so the detectives and a couple of uniformed officers head to Joe's residence where they get no answer despite a neighbor stating that they believed he was home. Oh, no. They then dispatched his probation officer to the location, but in the meantime, Joe's sister arrived and retrieved Joe from the house. Joe claimed he was home watching the Super Bowl with his landlord on Sunday. Well, that's a little bit weird. Yes, so Joe rented a room. Oh, I can't. That's not as weird then. I thought he just invited his landlord over. Yes. (laughs) I thought the same thing. And then I was like, no, wait. He's just like, "Uh, yeah, it's pretty common. Want a a beer? Like, which I feel we we should explain to those not in Florida. Thanks to the high cost of living here in Florida, it is not uncommon for people to rent rooms in their house to people. So the detective showed Joe a photo from the video footage. Joe took a look and said, that looks like me, but it's not me. Joe did not appear to be nervous or behave suspiciously throughout. He even allowed the detectives to search the room he rented in the house and his vehicle. 
In Joe's room, the detectives found two professionally cleaned and pressed coverall uniforms with the name tag Joe on them. I've never seen somebody who works a blue-collar job have their uniforms professionally cleaned. That's a good observation. I know a lot of blue-collar workers because a lot of my friends are in construction or plumbing or electric or tree work. And um, nope, they're pretty nasty. (laughs) They just wash and go. They just wash them in the washer and throw some scent bees in there (laughs) and call it a day. We don't use those. They're just wax, but yeah. Unpopular opinion. <laughs> We're going to get complaints now. I We're going to get bad reviews. People about- saying, use the sippies. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I'm not going to. This Laundry is, like, is a scam. This- how, many, how many episodes are we going to talk about laundry? <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, it's a point of contention in my life, okay? I think laundry is ridiculous. It's so, why is there always something else to do? Yes. You're telling me. Three kids and two dogs. I'm constantly doing laundry. Anyway, moving on. While the detectives are still at the house searching everything, Mimi, Joe's landlord, arrived home. Mimi tells detectives that Joe was home from at least 3 p.m. until around halftime of the Super Bowl because she remembered Joe got a phone call from his estranged wife and left the room. So. The detectives are like, well, the only weird thing we found was the coveralls, which we already knew he was going to have because the partner told us that. But we found nothing else. We have nothing else. And this lady's giving him an alibi. So they cleared him as a suspect in Carly's case. However, what they did find in his car was narcotic drug paraphernalia. Which he's out on parole for yes. drug abuse, so, so you're not out on parole anymore. <laughs> right. So once the probation officers show up, they hand it over to them and they arrest Joe. Now, detectives knew that it was unlikely Carly was still alive at this point because they had just hit the 48-hour mark. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they're... It's they're pretty much closing in on who their suspect yes. is too, and there's no sign of Carly, unfortunately. Yeah, but they refused to give up. Like they continued pushing through yeah. to find the quote monster who took her. Later that evening, the detective gets a call to the front of the station because there was a man named Jeff Pincus there who wanted to speak with him. You see, Mimi wasn't Joe's only landlord. She was Jeff's wife. And when Jeff got home and heard what happened, he decided he needed to go to the police station in his light-colored Buick station wagon. Oh, there we go. And Jeff said he wanted to correct the time frames Mimi had given them earlier. He told them she must have been confused about the times or days because she had been focused on watching their grandson who was with them on Sunday. Okay. He tells them Joe asked to borrow his car for just 15 minutes at about 3 o'clock Sunday afternoon. He confirmed Joe was wearing his coverall uniform when he left. 
And then he didn't return with Jeff's car until 7 a.m. Monday morning when Jeff was going to need the car back to go to work. Jeff told detectives he was furious and asked where the hell he had been, but that Joe just looked really happy, like he had just had the greatest night. Ugh. Ew, David. Yeah. His name is Joe. I'm quoting Shit's Creek. There's not a David. You're not missing somebody. <laughs> Ew, Joe. Ew, Joe. He told the detective that he knew something had taken place in the vehicle because the back seat had been laid down and multiple things were just out of place. Jeff admitted he knew Joe was acting very strange about the whole thing, and he then saw the security video on the news. So if you're like me, you're asking yourself, well, then why the hell are you just now coming? Yeah. Instead of calling police as soon as you saw that on the news. But my best guess as to why he didn't rush to tell them is either fear of being wrong somehow mm-hmm. or the fear of a man who just committed a heinous crime living in his house. Yeah, I think that's fair. But now that he knew that Joe had been arrested again on the drug charges. Yeah, he probably just feels safer. Yes. Now, armed with Jeff's testimony, they questioned Joe again. As soon as the detectives read him his rights, Joe told them he had already been advised to talk with a lawyer. The detective asked who advised him of that. Joe said, a friend. Though Joe wasn't talking to investigators, he did call his estranged brother, John, who, unbeknownst to Joe, was already working with investigators because he knew a couple things. He knew he had been estranged from his Joe because Joe was an addict. Mm-hmm. But Joe showed up to his house at some point Sunday evening, obviously high, and he turned him away and ignored him. Joe also called him that night. He ignored the calls because he's thinking, you're just on a bender. I'm not talking to you. And then he saw the footage in the news of Joe taking Carly. And so he had contacted police around the same time. So he agreed to talk to Joe Mm -hmm. to see because he basically was saying, yeah, Joe's not going to talk to you. He's never going to confess this. Okay. The only chance you have is if. I talk to him and get him to me and or yeah. our mother talk to him and somehow get him to confess. John had actually already gone to the jail, mm-hmm. talked to Joe. Joe didn't really give a full confession, but John knew he did this. Yeah. Eventually, then, when they have a phone call, Joe does confess then John called the detectives thinking that his phone had been tapped. He, he was like, so you got that, right? <laughs> and they're like, no, what? He thought they had tapped his phone. <laughs> but he hadn't, which means now John has to speak out against his brother. Yeah. I think he was hoping that his phone was tapped so that he wouldn't have to actually testify. They could just be like, well, we tapped his phone and here you go. So he ended up having to tell them exactly what Joe said. Mm-hmm. And he said that Joe admitted he abducted, sexually assaulted, and killed Carly 
before dumping her body in the woods behind the Central Church of Christ on Proctor Road, which is just a oh my few gosh. miles away. From I where have she heard was taken. people talking about yes this before, and I didn't put two and two together that yes. this was that case. Yes, this is that case. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. A forensic team found Carly in the woods, just as described, and confirmed that she had likely died from strangulation with a ligature. Eventually, detectives learned that Joe was under the influence of a cocktail of drugs, including cocaine, while driving Jeff's car down Bee Ridge Road mm -hmm. when he saw Carly walking. As she made her way through the parking lot, he tried pulling in but decided he's more likely to be seen and or can't make a quick enough getaway. Uh, so he decided to pull out down the side street along the back of the car wash, and he approached her in the rear of the car wash, as we know. Poor Carly. Obviously, it's over. They have him in custody. So now the legalities of it all. Joseph Peter Smith was charged with one count of kidnapping, one count of sexual battery against a person under 12 years of age, which I have, I have to say, I have big feelings about this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know how y'all feel, yeah, but I have big feelings about why, why is attacking somebody over the age of 12 different than attacking somebody under the age of 12? I don't think that the, I don't think that the punishment is any different and I'll tell you why. The punishment isn't any different. It's just a qualification of which which sex offender class they are. So the punishment ah, is the gotcha. same okay. because in okay. Florida, I don't know about in this at this time, but currently in Florida, any sexual crime yes. against a minor is a life felony. So it doesn't matter if it's over or under. Yeah, it's just right. to qualify and like kind of sort them. Yeah, which is disgusting that we have that many to sort, like Legos. Ugh. Yeah. I can't. Okay. I needed a minute. Yeah, Sorry. it's nasty. It's okay. It's, I'm. That's why I feel bad because I'm like <sighs> texting, but I like I keep looking down. I keep. I'm like I need to touch something with my hands because this is horrible. Yeah. He was also um, charged with one count of first degree murder. Uh, yeah. Well. DNA, hair, and fiber evidence were all found in the investigation, but it was truly the video that nailed the case against Joe because without it, they may not have even found her body in time to collect much evidence. Mm -hmm. Being Florida, there was already a significant amount of decomp happening, even though they found her body just five days after her death. Yeah, but it's, it's still like January, right? It's or it's February, end it's February, February, right? So it's like, it's already pretty, I mean, I don't know. It's pretty It's cold. not as, I'm sure wasn't as bad as it would be like in the summer. But yeah. The, I should the say medical, our cold is like, it's 50 degrees in February. Yeah, <laughs> for like three like, days in February. <laughs> yeah, for like three days in February, it's 50 degrees. And then we're in like the 60s. So it's not. Yeah. But it wasn't about that. It's about the fact that we have so many bugs and she was left in the woods. And I mean, yes, it would be worse in the summer months, in the rainy season. Yeah. But nevertheless, the medical examiner well, noted five days that, outside is a long time. Yeah. And she, yeah. Well, 
I don't want to be too gory. So well, I mean, it's, this if is it's already important. a super sad case. It's just that you didn't get into a lot of detail. It's okay. No, yeah, I can't. I wouldn't be able to get through it if I did. Yeah, like she said, somebody requested this case, and like I briefly looked at it, and I was like, nope, I can't. It's difficult. So there was also a number of recorded phone calls between Joe and his family members, as well as a deciphered letter he had sent to his brother in code. Oh, he's so... That was really bad, by the way. <laughs> it was Wait. bad code. It was it was bad code. Very bad code. Now, I'm not going to get into it. Um, I don't wish the level of rage that I felt reading the transcript upon any of you. Yeah. Um, the transcript of the phone calls, I should say. But if you'd like to know what was said, it's in the court document that's in my sources. Now, the jury clearly found Joseph Smith guilty of all three charges. But the death penalty was on the table Mm -hmm. in 2004. So the next portion was the penalty phase, where the prosecution presented evidence of Joe's record including that he was on probation when he committed these crimes. The medical examiner testified that the evidence suggests that Carly was conscious when he strangled her Mm. due to there being no other evidence of an injury or chemical that would have produced unconsciousness, and the ligature marks on her wrists suggest that she was restrained. As with most cases... The prosecution rested after the victim impact statements given by Carly's family and teacher. The defense presented... I'm sorry, her teacher? Her teacher. The school was, like, they were on it. Because which elementary school did she go to? No, she was in middle school. She went to McIntosh. The defense presented 19 different witnesses that testified to a number of things, most of which predominantly focused on Joe being a good guy, but that his childhood had been difficult, and unfortunately, he struggled with drugs for pretty much all his adult life. Mm -hmm. Now, Joe requested to make an allocution statement, which was denied because he did not agree to be subject to a cross-examination. But since he had not testified in the trial, I think the judge felt like that's the only fair way to do it. Yeah. The state's rebuttal to the many testimonies on his behalf were letters that had been intercepted between Joe and another inmate, which clearly spelled out his desire for violence against his brother, John, as well as a fellow inmate. Why do people write letters in jail and write notes? Are you dumb? You, I mean, yes. yes. <laughs> but, like, do you not, like, excuse me? Excuse me? Yeah. You should really know better. They're, they're going to find it. A, they're going to find it. B, if you write a letter, it gets screened. Mm-hmm. Dummy. I mean, I know it's not this exact situation, but still. I mean, part of the evidence against him, though, is he's talking on a prison phone to his family members. Saying he did it, like saying, yeah. this is what happened. This is, I'm sorry. And he was apologizing to them for them having to go through this and stuff. 
he says that he was high unlike any other time he's been high before and that he barely remembered what he did. Yeah. Nevertheless, why are you, you why would you use the prison phone to say because all of this? Because he's stupid. When you have a trial coming up. I don't know. Whatever. Well, on December 1st, 2005, nearly two years after Carly's death, the jury voted for the death penalty by a 10 to 2 vote. This being. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a lot of people. Yeah. This being Florida, though, it wasn't the end. Of course not. Florida has something called Spencer hearings, which is another hearing before the judge officially enters the sentence in a death penalty case. Mm hmm. It allows additional mitigating evidence to be presented and the defendant to give a statement, which is another reason that the judge was like, no, you, I'm not allowing you to do the allocution statement without being cross-examined because if you do get the death penalty, you're going to get to yeah, you give get a to statement talk anyway. anyway. So at the Spencer hearing, a portion of his statement went like this. After a little time went by, I had called my wife and I asked to come home, but on February 1st, I found out that she didn't want me. I lost my business, my family, and my self-control was really coming apart fast. I just wanted to die on that day. And we all say, better you than Carly. Literally, yeah, I wasn't going to say it, but like, bro. I'll say it. <laughs> why do you think it's okay it's I uh, uh. anyway. This, well, this drastically affected so many people. Yes, it did. And most of all, an an innocent eleven year old child. Yes. Well, had her whole life ahead of her. According to him, he tried. He says he goes on to say, so I went out, copped a bunch of heroin, cocaine, and began injecting it, hoping I would overdose. I was so high, I never experienced a high like that. It was different than any other time. I think it was mixed with something else. I want you to know that I take full responsibility for the crimes. I don't know how all of this happened. I was very angry at myself and very high. I knew that getting high was wrong, but I could not stop. I'm not trying to make excuses for what happened, but I really don't remember much about anything on that day after about 4 p.m. Addiction is crazy. Yeah. I don't really, I don't know. I'm not, I have loved ones that are addicts and have done not, mm -hmm. obviously nothing this crazy. I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, because I, I know what you're saying. Like, it's, like he said, it's not an excuse. It's an explanation, but it's not an excuse. And even yeah. then, I'm like, but how, how can you, in any state, do what you've done? Yeah, I think that's my issue, is I, I guess, I mean, if somebody can, like, take bath salts and try to eat somebody else's <laughs> face, like, I, I guess, but I don't know. I think, actually, I think my biggest issue with him saying I don't remember much. Mm-hmm. But you remembered where you put her body. Yeah. Like, distinctly. Oh, it's in the woods behind this church. Not like, 
oh, I I remember it being in woods, but I don't remember exactly yeah. where. Yeah, I mean, he could have definitely remembered more than he said he did. Yeah. So. Which, and him not saying that is a shame thing, for sure. Anywho, I think that pretty much gives you an idea of what the defense's mitigating strategy was. Regardless, on March 15th, 2006, Joseph Smith was sentenced to death for the murder of Carly. And then he got, like, the lifetime. Yes, that goes along with that. That goes along with the other charges. The court's decision was based on the state proving six statutory aggravators, which were as follows. He committed a felony while on probation. Mm -hmm. The murder was committed while engaged in sexual battery and kidnapping. Mm -hmm. The murder was committed to avoid getting arrested for the other crimes. That's true. The murder was especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel. The murder was cold, calculated, and premeditated. And the final one was that the victim was under the age of 12. In 2009, Joseph appealed. What? I'm so shocked. Our favorite. He challenged 15 different points of his conviction. I am not getting into Yeah. (laughs) Like, that's too much. Um, The only one I think worth mentioning here is his challenge that the court, quote, deprived him of a fair penalty phase and due process of the law by not allowing him to give a statement of allocution without being cross-examined. He acknowledged that this exact thing had been ruled on already and was Mm -hmm. totally within limits found to be acceptable in capital cases. What is that called? Oh my gosh, the legal term for that. It starts with a P. Where they've ruled on it already. Oh, precedent. Yes. <laughs> I was thinking I it was way more complicated. I, yeah, I was like I, I, was I like, couldn't what? put my finger on it. It was driving me crazy. That's precedent. That's so. called precedent. Yes. I mean, obviously that means that they've ruled on it already and generally the rule of thumb is unless there was something wrong with the original ruling, you lean on precedent. Yes. So, he acknowledged that that was the precedent. However, he argued that in his case, the jurors were, quote, sophisticated enough to be aware of allocution and were likely expecting a statement of remorse. And then when he didn't give one, they may have believed that he wasn't remorseful. His evidence of this was that One of the questions submitted by the jury to the court in the penalty phase was, quote, is it within the realm of possibility to consider a sentence based on allocution to the crime? I mean, I mean, I can I I do. I I I see a little. I see his argument, but because some would argue that his sentence may have been different if they thought that he was remorseful. Yes. If he said, I regret it. True. Dang, I hate when they have a point. The appellate court said no. Good. That, I mean, makes it easier. It was allowed, and ultimately, it comes down to the judge. Okay, that's fair. They said it doesn't matter, because ultimately, it comes down to the judge in the Spencer trial, at which time the defendant gets an allocution statement with no cross-examination. So they said, if your allocution statement had been worth 
saving you from the death penalty, he would have still. You. He, you still had another shot. Yeah, and the judge, you know, the judge can overrule what the jury says at that time. I just thought the debate on that whole argument was fascinating, so I thought I'd throw that one in. Yeah, no, the rest it is of them were very much what you expect Garbage in an appeal. Things. Like yeah. they're just grasping at straws. Yeah. Regardless of all of Joseph's challenges. The appellate court affirmed his convictions and the sentencing. Now, it's not over yet. Lord. I mean, it was over for Joe, but obviously, life goes on. Sort of. Both Carly's mom and dad began advocating for the safety of children after her death. Mm Mm-hmm. Her dad agreed to let Representative Catherine Harris use Carly's name on a bill she was introducing to Congress. This is what I know of. Yeah. Yeah. In 2004, Carly's law failed to be voted on before the end of session and was reintroduced in 2005 when it failed to pass. Um, Just a thought, though. Perhaps one of the flaws with it was that it was a bill to add an amendment to existing law that would toughen the parole rules for sex offenders. But that wouldn't have actually helped Carly. At all. Because Joseph Smith was out on parole after serving time on drug charges. He actually was not a convicted sex offender. Does that mean he hadn't done any? No. Committed any sex offenses? No. But... With what this bill said, no, that wouldn't have helped her. Yeah. But they, (laughs) but that goes into like, not that Carly didn't deserve justice. Not that Carly, I I absolutely want to take nothing away from her case. But we all know that there are undoubtedly other cases in the state of Florida where it was a sex offender Mm -hmm. committing another sex offense while out on parole or probation that could have been used where the victims could have been, you know, have their name slapped on there. But Carly's got a lot of attention. Carly was a cute, white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, 11-year-old. Yeah. But most of the girls that I see missing uh, news about is usually through social media. Yep. And they are not white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed girls. They are girls of color. They are black or Hispanic or Latina. Indigenous around here, Indigenous. Say it louder for the people in the back. Just a thought. Not saying that Carly absolutely, she should have. Oh, deserved. Yeah. It's not. But this isn't the the bill for that. And that's, I definitely think that affected it because they look at it and they're like, well, that doesn't make sense. So like, what are we doing? It it, it affects the credibility of of the law that they're asking to be introduced. So I I believe so. Not that, (laughs) not that Congress or the Senate would actually care about that, but I guess I'm just... Because wasn't the law, like, wasn't Carly's law about allowing non-custodial parents or, like, people who had access to children know about sex offenders? Yes, which is why her father worked with them and signed off. Because it was her stepfather. No, because her father lived in New York, so he had no idea, like, what is taking place. 
So he I see. was for this law being passed because in their case, that's how it would have, if it had actually been a thing in yeah. her case, then he would have been informed of, you know. Yeah. Because that's, because if, yeah, if I remember correctly, the Carly's law was to allow or demand that non-custodial parents know about sex offenders in the area that their child is living in. Yes. I just want to say props to me for remembering that. That is, that's I'm good. I'm impressed with myself <laughs> because I did not Google that. No. I remember it good. in my own noggin. Good job. Thank you. All right, my final sad news. Susan, Carly's mom, had been volunteering with an organization called Predator Patrol after Carly's death. That's a good name. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Unfortunately, though, Susan never really found a way to get past Carly's death. Oh. And in the years following, she also suffered more traumas, including her mother dying shortly after Carly her brother dying in a car accident, her father passing away, and then her son being severely injured after getting hit by a drunk driver when he, too, was just 11 years old. Holy smokes! Yeah. I mean, like, she must have run across a black cat or something. That's I don't horrible. Know. Actually, I don't want to promote horrible. that black cats are not bad luck. Yeah, They're actually no. good luck. I don't want to say that. But I'm just saying, like, what? Yes. And unfortunately, Susan developed a drug addiction of her own and was in and out of jail for things like possession, prostitution, and selling over the years um, until 2017 when she died from an overdose at the age of 47. Oh, my goodness. Wow. In May of 2021, Joseph Smith was granted a new sentencing hearing by the Florida Supreme Court after the U.S. Supreme Court found Florida's death penalty system unconstitutional because it gave too much authority to the judges instead of the juries. No comment. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. <laughs> we all know how I feel about the death penalty, okay? If you don't, you need to listen to some listen of our to other more episodes. episodes. Um, but just a quick recap, I, I disagree with the death penalty because a lot of times it puts the decision in the hands of the jury, which then makes them responsible for killing a person. And I think that that is unethical, regardless of the fact that I don't think that the, the government should have the ability to kill people. I don't agree with that part of it either. My main issue with it yeah. is how much juries have to do with it. Yeah. Well, fortunately for everyone involved. That was still alive anyway. That never happened because Joseph Smith died in prison just a few months later from undisclosed causes. We all know what that means. He was a rapist of a child in yeah, a Florida prison. He made prison. it that long. Yeah, because they hadn't had the opportunity. They wait. Because here's the thing. They know his life is bad in prison. They might as well make it pretty rough while they can. And then when they find the right opportunity, we all know what happened. I mean, I'm not saying it's re, not re, true. Re, re, re. I'm doing the, I just, the scream the scream knife. Sorry. The psycho? Yeah, psycho. I'm sorry. I don't know. I've never been to jail, but 
I do follow people from jail on TikTok. <laughs> and that's what they say. Okay. Well, if you heard it on TikTok, that's it must true, be true, obviously. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I I did find it a little odd. That it was on Because I've, yeah. I mean, I've literally done cases where they die on death row and it was from like health issues. And so they just say that. So being that it's undisclosed, yeah, chances are he got yeah. the shiv. He got-, <laughs> he got the shiv. I mean, listen, normally death row is pretty solitary. It just yeah. depends. I don't know which prison he's in or what their setup is, but undisclosed maybe it was. Who knows? I don't know. Not me. I think I know, though. I think you know. I think you're picking up what I'm putting down. <laughs> I think he was killed. <laughs> I saw a Jeep driving down the road on my way over here, and it looked like very much like a like a Jeep, you know, like <laughs> like, like Jeep. Jeep. It was a Jeep. Don't no doors, like a Jeep. no roof, and on any, or anything okay. like a Jeep Wrangler. Yeah, it was a Wrangler. And um, for for a minute, I was like, mm, "Who did you vote for?" And then on the back of the Jeep, it has a sticker that says, "Epstein didn't kill himself." <laughs> and I was like. Okay, my people. <laughs> I mean, sort of. I think that it I kind th- of is a mutual. I think that is a nonpartisan issue. That's true. That's true. I've heard a lot of different people. Yeah, you're, you're right, actually. <laughs> so can go either way. I don't agree with every party on most things, but I do agree that Epstein <laughs> didn't, didn't kill himself. himself. Well. I just don't know that I, I don't think he killed himself either, but I don't necessarily agree with the predominant theory on who had it done or who did it. So I don't know. I'll just throw that out there. I don't know enough about it. If you turn it into a partisan issue, yeah. it was the Clintons that had him offed. Oh. I don't necessarily believe that. I don't. Based on the I documentary that I watched about Epstein, I don't believe I that. couldn't watch I can't watch that. It's too much for me. Well, I watched it. And I'm surprised you watched it. I can watch stuff like that. It's hard. Yeah. I had to pause a lot, but I don't know. Anyway. If you made it through this rant, go leave a little apple emoji in honor of all of her classmates and all of her teachers who worked really hard to preserve Carly's memory. That would be great. Yeah. And great job doing a tasteful coverage of this. Thank you. And now you guys know where we live, so. Ruh-roh. <laughs> Oopsies. <laughs> well. It's not really a secret. I think it's on our Facebooks and stuff, so. I think so. Yeah. All right. Well. Yeah, reach out. Tell us what you think. And who suggested you know. this case? Give them a little shout out. Fernanda. Fernanda. You're a real one. Thanks for the request. We yep. always try and accommodate, so. Yeah, sorry it took so long. It's well, just a it very sad case. Yeah. So we kind of put it off for other cases. I'm doing, an awkward, I'm doing an awkward <laughs> thumbs up, but you, I forgot you can't see us, so <laughs> it's awkward. So it's twice as awkward. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go. Bye. All right. See you next Thanks week. for listening, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Find us on Instagram and TikTok at Burden of Proof Pod and email us at burdenofproofpod at gmail.com.